0: Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray. I hope you're having a great week as this episode is coming out. We are under quarantine, lockdown, social distancing, wherever you are in the world listening to this. I hope you are staying safe and you and your family are well. This week, I have Dr. Sunil Dand on the podcast. He is originally from London or went to medical school in London and is an internal medicine physician who is doing a lot of preventive medicine as well. He's also a personal trainer, a very similar background to me. So I hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to talk a lot about his journey, preventive medicine, internal medicine. And a little bit about the differences between the UK and the US, which might be a little bit uh, interesting even now as we're going through this global pandemic. So I hope you enjoy our episode today. We start the conversation by talking about what got Dr. Dan into internal medicine and preventive medicine to begin with.
1: I uh, went to medical school in the UK. I grew up just outside London, went to medical school, city called Cardiff, which is about two hours west of, of London. Uh, went through medical school. While I was in medical school, I knew I wanted the op- the option of training overseas, uh, especially in the US. So I did my US MLEs at the same time I was in medical school. And then I worked for a year in the NHS. Uh, during that time, I applied for residency training I knew I wanted to do internal medicine because it would give me lots of options. I ended up coming and doing my residency in Baltimore, um, did internal medicine. And then as I was finishing, I was looking into different options. And at that time, uh, the field of hospital medicine, becoming a hospitalist, uh, was really taking off. Internal medicine was dividing up between those just in primary care and those who were just rounding in the hospital as opposed to before when the primary care doctor would round in the hospital. So I did hospital medicine. It afforded me a block schedule, gave me some time to travel, explore other options. Did that for about a couple of years and then decided I wanted to look into different things and I knew that a big passion of mine was wellness and preventive medicine. I had always been into exercising and trying to eat well. And I grew frustrated because a lot of the problems that I was seeing on an everyday basis in acute care medicine were all being driven by poor lifestyle. We, we know that there's a an exponential increase in obesity and the illnesses that come with that, diabetes, heart disease. And because of that, I uh, put my head down, decided to write a book, and the book was going to be based all, all on natural everyday steps that can be taken to improve your health and well-being. And the premise of the book is that we have all these expensive medicines and treatments that come out, which in order to be deemed successful, have a number needed to treat, That's the, that's the phrase we use in statistics, of one in 20 which means there's a 5% chance that a certain treatment may work and then we deem it a big success. However, if you look at studies and say you tell people to increase their fiber intake or go for a run every day, their health and well-being may be improved by 80 or 90%. And it's just incredible how these small steps that we can take every day have much higher percentage improvements from research than medicines and, and treatments that are in the traditional sphere of healthcare. So I wrote this book focusing on uh, nutrition, exercise, um, and it even went as far as mindset, stress reduction, just everything we could do to improve in these areas to, to increase our level of health and well-being. At the same time, I was continuing my work as a hospitalist, and eventually that just became a repetitive cycle of seeing the same illnesses over and over again, and I decided I want to take to take a step and go into the outpatient realm. So a few years ago, I joined a wellness clinic, uh, which was based in Boston, where we really get to spend time with patients focusing on their lifestyles, what they're doing wrong, what they're doing right. We do blood tests on them. We may do other cardiac tests on them, but we could have an hour or two with every patient, which is unheard of in traditional medicine, especially in primary care. But we get to really get to the bottom of many of their chronic issues and also their future risk of developing chronic issues and guide them, hopefully motivate them to change. And currently, I balance that wellness clinic work with my acute care work. I I still enjoy doing that. It's what I trained for. But I like the fact that instead of just dealing with these problems that come up and curing them when they're in the hospital, we're taking a step back and hopefully preventing illness 10 20 30 years before it happens.
0: You said pretty early on you knew medicine over surgery. What why was that an easy decision or or was it not an easy decision for you?
1: Well, I I didn't see myself as a surgeon. I looked at the surgeons around me in medical school and and my rotations. I just I enjoyed medicine much more. I liked the thinking that goes into it. And I like the patient interaction side of it is why well. I just I, I didn't see myself standing in the OR for two or three days every week and just doing operations. I preferred the human interactions. Yeah.
0: Okay. Now with your practice now being kind of fifty percent inpatient in the hospital and fifty percent outpatient, doing a lot of preventive medicine, a lot of wellness. What types of patients are you seeing? Let's, let's focusing more on the outpatient side. What types of patients are you seeing helping them with their their wellness and, and preventive medicine?
1: So so most of my patients are professionals and their uh, companies uh, have paid for them to come and have these, these wellness checks. They're the majority of our, our patients and they can be uh, ranging from age from their early 20s all the way up to their 50s and 60s. And um, I see a full range, really, but a lot of them kind of fill the profile uh, of a, a very busy professional who's very busy with work and family life, and their health has kind of fallen off the wagon. So that's why they need us to, to sit down with them and go over all of their numbers and, and risk factors, trying to get them on the right path again.
0: And how do you see that different than a typical primary care provider?
1: Well, a primary care doctor may have five to 15 minutes with every patient. We have an hour or two often with every patient. And we go into a lot of detail and then offer services afterwards when when they follow up in terms of nutrition, exercise advice. So it really is more detailed and we try to motivate our patients more. I don't think like a a quick 10-minute consultation where you're just told to lose weight or eat more vegetables is quite enough for most people. Yeah. Definitely.
0: What does a typical day look like for you?
1: So my days really vary. I, I make my own schedule, so I independently contract out with um, with all of the places where I work. So if I'm doing hospital work, my day will typically start around 7 a.m., uh, finish around 6 or 7, so they're, they're long days. Uh, my wellness clinic will also start around 7, but typically finish a little bit earlier by about 4 o'clock.
0: Awesome. When, when a patient comes to you, what does that interaction look like? Cause I I know a lot of students listening to this may be familiar, maybe in their, their medical school rotations there, they've done some outpatient stuff. They've seen those 10 or 15 minute appointments and they're like, wow, an hour or two, how do you like, what do you do in an hour or two? That's just, that's crazy. What what are you doing that whole time?
1: So I will go over how they're feeling, how they perceive their own health and wellness. Then if I'm seeing them for the first time, which usually I am, we'll go over complete history, a complete medical history. Then we'll move on to their nutrition habits, how they feel about what they're eating, what their typical days look like, and their exercise routine. And then we will talk about their stress factors in their life, how they feel about how stressed they are on a daily basis, which, of course, nowadays is fairly universal in society, no matter what field you're in, um, how they feel about their energy levels, how much sleep they're getting. So you can see that this is completely different from traditional medicine, where we are really focused on this is what's wrong with you. This is the cure. We are taking a step back and saying, "Well, look at your overall level of well-being." And of course, there's the famous phrase that uh, wellness is not merely the um, absence of disease; it's actually a a whole host of other factors that goes into your your level of well-being. So we we're, we're really trying to improve that for our patients. But of course, the cornerstone is their eating habits, their exercise habits maintaining an ideal BMI, and then looking at their blood tests. This isn't all just talking. We, we actually do tests on them, and we can see if their LDL is creeping up, their inflammatory cardiac CRP is up. Uh, we're, we're finding out what their risks are and trying to advise them accordingly, uh, all about prevention.
0: And for for you having gone through internal medicine training and now doing more preventive medicine it, have you looked into potentially going back and doing a, a preventive medicine or a lifestyle medicine fellowship or training now that those are becoming more common?
1: I have. I've, I've thought about it. I, I feel like I already have a, a good fundamental understanding. And I think as a whole, especially with many, many different fields, which are not technical, we kind of get very hung up on getting the certificate or qualification and, and a lot of the time. Um, While that's all very good to to do that, uh, much of this is already taught in medical school and a lot of it is just simple common sense as well. And I I feel like from my own research, my writing and what I do on a daily basis, I already have a a fundamental understanding. Uh, I did actually recently get a qualification and I become a certified personal trainer as well with the national academy of sports medicine and i wanted to do that to give my patients more detailed exercise plans Um, but in answer to your question yes it is something i've I've thought about um i I feel though i already have a lot of that knowledge but yeah i wouldn't rule it out in the future probably a, a a lifestyle medicine certification of some type
0: awesome I used to be a, a personal trainer before medical school. Even during medical school I still worked as a personal trainer. So Oh, it's, you did. That's definitely a good good skill to have that uh, not a lot of people understand.
1: That that's very true. Yes, and I'm I'm trying to determine what my niche is at the moment. I'm um much more into guiding my patients on weight loss and maintaining cardiovascular fitness then it would be to bodybuild or um, have a a niche like that. I feel like that would be a good fit for me, just focusing on the weight loss, which is a a problem for most people. 70% of the country are overweight or obese. We have a, a big public health crisis.
0: Yeah. It's it's interesting. Let me ask you since you're kind of in in the in the heat of it with your patients and getting the the training and everything else to teach them. Why do you think, right? I think m- most people understand, right? Diet and exercise are key to to living a healthier life. What do you think is preventing them from doing that?
1: I think that um As you said, I mean, most people do understand, but it's just easy to get stuck in a rut. And from what I see, um, there's certain big sort of risk areas of life where this can happen. But one of which is when people get really busy with work and family life. And they'll tell me, well, when I was in high school or college, I used to play sports. I was in such good shape. And then they've kind of just forgotten all of the good things that they've done. And we live in a society which is tempting us all the time Talk about nutrition. I mean, uh, our diets have drastically changed over the last hundred years. And um, without talking in too much detail, I mean, just the, the basic fact is we consume too many calories and carbohydrates have really become a scourge of modern day eating as well. And we will go to a restaurant and we'll just be given a portion which is outrageously large, which we feel we have to finish. And you, you, as you said, you were just in London a couple of months ago and in, in other parts of the world, in Europe, we don't have such big portions. There's no super size. There's not even any concept of, of super size. Um, I, I feel like things are changing slowly though, but we're still well behind other countries. So we, we're living in an environment where we're, we're full of temptations and we have the food around us. We also live in a society where Being sedentary is encouraged. Most people have very sedentary jobs. We don't walk around as much as we used to. Um, You go to pretty much any drive through in the country, whether it's a Dunkin' Donuts or anything else where you want to grab a coffee, and you'll see people waiting in cars for like 15 minutes to go and order when they could just park and go inside and get it within two minutes. But we don't want to. We want to be sedentary. And when we're in that type of environment, it's easy to become like everyone else around you. And I've been there myself. I, I got into some bad habits during residency. I stopped working out. I was eating complete rubbish and I had to sort of force myself to get back on track. But I feel like most people, once you give them a plan and you tell them what living unhealthily is doing to their bodies and how it's increasing their risk of illness, most people want to change. They just need that push and, and constant motivation. Yeah.
0: That salt and sugar from fast food restaurants just tastes so good, though.
1: <laughs> it, it does, yeah. I mean, it's tasty food. We're, we're all cavemen and cave women at heart. We still have those same instincts. We're going to go for the high-calorie, carb-rich mm-hmm. foods. That's a, a normal thing.
0: Yeah. What, uh, in your day-to-day practice now, are you working with a lot of other specialists, or is it mostly just you in those two hours working with the patient?
1: Oh, it, it would be just me with the patient and then we have a team of nutritionists, exercise advisors, other counselors who can get in touch with people afterwards, but it would just be me with the patient during that time and of course the nurses are, are doing all the measurements and blood tests.
0: Yeah. What do you wish for the for the future primary care physician listening to this, what do you wish they knew about preventive medicine and, and wellness? Uh, That that maybe they're not doing what you're doing full time, but at least understanding some parts of it to integrate into their practice in the future.
1: So I, I feel like primary care is just probably the toughest specialty to do at the moment. And I've actually written articles about this. Our primary care system is completely broken. And it has to be the backbone of any healthcare care system. And we're focused on the wrong things in healthcare. We're spending billions on on technology and increasing the number of specialists, but we're forgetting primary care. So to any primary care physician, what I would say is, of course you do a tough job and you might wonder, what on earth you can do with this five or ten minutes that you now have with the patient when you already have so many other issues to fix, how do you reinforce wellness? And what I would say is, even if you don't feel like you can do it yourself to ensure that your practice is able to give people guidance, whether it's at the front desk, giving people resources or having an additional nurse to talk about it, I I don't feel, and I wouldn't give primary care doctors too much for hard time, just knowing what a tough specialty it is, to to even think of dealing with that is, is very difficult. So I I feel for them. Um, what I will say if they just want to do one quick thing, and as doctors, we underestimate the power of our words. If you just if you just commit to one statement during every visit to someone who needs it, which could just take a few seconds, whether it's like something like, Oh, are you eating your greens? Are you getting up and walking around? Just I try to do this in the hospital as well, just so that I know I'm doing something as opposed to nothing. I would say Have that awareness. Reinforce what you can. Don't beat yourself up too much about not having too much time to do it. But if you can't, then make sure that within your practice there are some resources for your patients to utilize.
0: What do you like the most about being a preventive medicine specialist?
1: I like the fact that I'm focused on prevention rather than cure. That we're not just dealing with problems after they come up. Um, We can really understand a patient's lifestyles and a lot of them do follow through on the advice we give them but just knowing that you are preventing them from getting diabetes or heart disease in 10 or 20 years which will have enormous consequences not just for them or their families i find that tremendously rewarding to, to know that you're doing that and, and you're, you're doing your best. You no one can say afterwards, well, this patient didn't know what would happen or wasn't given the guidance.
0: What do you like the least?
1: I, what I like the least is that I feel like we're up against, um, an avalanche like as soon it, it's easy to make plans everybody can make plans i can make plans as a doctor the patient can say what they want to do but the reality is as soon as they get out into the real world and they're very busy again with whatever they're doing whether it's work family life it's really difficult to stick to those plans and keep that level of motivation fortunately most of the patients i see in my wellness clinic are already very motivated, and I would love to to find a way to sort of take that out and and go more to people who who need it and aren't motivated, mm. uh, especially the people at the uh, on the lower end of the socioeconomic demographic.
0: yeah, definitely something that's important to get get out there. Um, that time crunch is definitely an issue.
1: it is, yes.
0: Do you see any major changes coming to the field of preventive medicine? Do, do you see what you're doing, the time that you're able to take with patients? Do you see that becoming uh, more frequent in, in the medical space? Do you see it becoming an issue with insurance or, or insurance maybe getting on board at some point and actually paying for this straight away?
1: I'm optimistic for the future. I might be painting a a negative picture of where we are now, but I do feel like we're witnessing a sea change. There is generally much more awareness, especially among the younger generations now. I mean, just to take one example, veganism, which is uh, exploding right now. And I I never thought that that would happen in the United States, um, but it is. And we're learning about the enormous health benefits from a predominantly plant-based diet, and it's literally everywhere. Um, It certainly is here in the Northeast. And I remember when I first came to the US, this was not a a big movement at all. Nobody talked about vegetarianism or veganism, health benefits, but now I'm just seeing much more awareness of it in the media. So everything is kind of filtering down. Uh, You've got a lot of TV shows that are coming out now addressing this very topic, more discussion about exercise, and the benefits of, uh, uh, maintaining an active lifestyle. I think things will change, but it's going to be led by the younger generation. I feel like there is a lost generation of people from the age of about 40 to, um, 70 or 80 who kind of haven't had this drummed into them and don't understand it. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I do believe that things, things will change.
0: Let's talk a minute since since you're one of the few physicians I've had on this podcast who did their training overseas and then and then came and did your residency here. Can we talk about that for a minute just to give sure. give some perspective on what that was like? So, going to medical school in the UK and and seeing medical training here, what are the, some of the the biggest differences between medical school there and here?
1: Medical school, um, so the content of what's taught in medical school is, is fairly similar. Obviously, we have to learn the same basic physiology and it's all one human body, no matter where we are. I would say that in the US, it's much more practical than theory focused. So the UK is quite old school still with regards to relying on clinical skills and looking at the theory behind that, that's tested much more. I remember when I first came to the US and I was doing my residency, I was working with medical students and I was absolutely shocked. And these were third and fourth year students, I would be with them and say, look, examine the chest and then tell me what you think. And they would get their stethoscope and go straight to the chest. And that would never happen in the UK. In the UK, we're taught like a a very early 1900s kind of way where we start at the hands, we look at the face, and then we do a very rigorous protocol in terms of inspection, palpation, percussion, and then we'll present our findings. It's, it's very traditional in that way. Medical school in the UK is also longer. It's five to six years as opposed to four. But uh, students over there don't go to college first, like in the US and Canada. Actually, the US and Canada are the only countries in the world where you have to do college before medical school. Everywhere else, you go straight from high school to medical school. So the medical students in the UK are a lot younger when they start med school, they're all around eighteen years old mm. and finish earlier. Um training afterwards is very different. however, um, after you become a doctor in the UK, you will become a junior house officer for one year and then a senior house officer. And typically to become an attending, the process is much longer. It might be anything from ten to twelve years, no matter what specialty you do. Whereas here, the postgrad training, I will say is, is, much better for a number of ways, including it's very focused. You know what you want to do, you go into it and you train rigorously, and then you'll be churned out at the other end and you'll be, um, fully qualified in your specialty. So whatever that happens to be here, three to six years of, of residency training, um, will be entirely focused in, in the UK. There's, as I said, a lot longer, but there's also a lot of flexibility in between. Many doctors will go overseas. Australia, New Zealand are actually very popular destinations and train for a year or two, um, but they will be um, older by the time they finish and come out as attendings or what we call consultants in the UK. And
0: then for you, or for anyone rather, um, obviously you specifically went through this process. What what was the process for you to come and do your residency training here? I, I know a lot of people, I, I think, understand hopefully about USMLE, the, the boards, etc. That that's obviously not something that you're taking over there normally. But if you want to come and do your training here, that's something that you need to focus on. What was that process like?
1: I, I knew probably in my second year of uh, medical school that I wanted to keep op- keep open the option of training in the U.S. So I actually did my USMLEs while I was in medical school there. So um, as soon as we finished uh, a particular section of the curriculum, like the physiology, anatomy, um, I just, I sat the USMLE step one because I've already studied for that. Uh, there were a few different things to learn, but most of it, was the same as I said the human body is the same wherever you go so I just I timed it all so USMLE step 1 was at towards the end of my third year uh, of medical school then the step um step 2 I did when I'd finished my clinical rotations in the UK okay and then after that um the application process uh, it's probably very similar to to what it would be for any student here you go you do everything online you come over for a, an interview and then there's just some some certain um, hurdles to clear with regards to getting the right visa to come over and whether you need to do step three or not in order to start residency. Some programs you have to, um, especially to get a license, which would require visa. So so there's d- different hurdles involved. Uh, but broadly, uh, what my advice would be to any student who wants to consider training in the U.S. is try to do your USMLEs. At the same time as you're in medical school, it'll make life a lot easier rather than go back and have to study again, and then really know your options. Obviously, you're going to be limited. You're not going to be on the same playing field. Um, y- the U.S. medical students are going to naturally get priority as as they should, and you may have to settle for your second choice. Um, but certainly, for me, training over here was well worth it. I enjoyed it. It gave me a different perspective. I felt like the internal medicine training was very, very focused on what I would be doing. And uh, if you want to finish and then go back to your home country or go consider another country, the US qualification would be widely recognized. Just might be, again, a few hurdles like they would have been for me had I gone back to the UK, but uh, they, they can be overcome if you wanted to, to work through them. Nice.
0: Any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this, thinking about internal medicine and, and having their eyes open to preventive medicine?
1: Yes, I would. I, I would give. Um, well, the first piece of advice I would say is um, you have a great journey ahead of you as a medical student. Uh, no matter what specialty you want to do, I I do feel like there's a lot of negativity out there, and I I wonder what students must think when they go online and they look at different websites and see how difficult practicing physicians are, are finding things for a number of reasons. My advice would be to not listen to all of that. Obviously, you're only going to see people with something to complain about, go online and talk about how bad the system is. Um, But being in medicine has tremendous rewards over the long term. I I feel like it's a very flexible career as long as you keep your mind open. There's a lot of options with what you can do with a, a medical degree, even if you don't want to go the traditional route. I feel like medicine is an industry which is changing rapidly. But the basics of it, the fundamentals are the same in terms of you're the doctor, you will have a patient and you will do your best to get that patient feeling better. That's the same no matter what specialty you do. You will never go home at the end of the day feeling like you haven't made a difference or done something of value. Lots of professions, people reach their 40s and 50s and beyond and they're sitting in cubicles just wondering exactly what they're doing with their careers and whether they're doing anything at all of importance, you should never, ever feel that way as a practicing physician, as long as you remember the basics and and value your time and interactions with patients. Specifically, with regards to preventive medicine, I would say that no matter, again, what specialty you're in, never forget that a large percentage of the patients you're seeing are there because of their lifestyles. And it's far better to continue focusing on that and preventing illness than it is to just cure what's there. Obviously, doctors are needed. We have to cure the ailments that we see in front of us, but always have it in the back of your mind that certain patients are there because of their lifestyles. And if you if you fail to address that, you're really only doing half the job.
0: Now, I'll, I'll have to ask because you have experience in both systems. You, the US, you mentioned US and Canada were the only, the only countries that you go to college before medical school. There's, there's also one other huge thing that's very special about the US is that we don't have any sort of uh, universal or, or single payer system here for our, our citizens or our, our population. Coming from the UK where you have the, the NHS... Do you think we need to have some variation of a universal health care system here, whether it's similar to Canada or similar to the UK?
1: Well, I do think that the system needs to change. I mean, it, it's breaking and we fail far too many people. We've got soaring costs and inadequate coverage. I, I would say that my, my views have somewhat changed over the years. I, like most people growing up in the UK, I was very pro-NHS, socialized medicine, And when I came over to the US, one of the first things I was truly shocked at in such a rich country was that I saw elderly patients breaking pills in half because they wanted to make them last longer. It was costing too much. You would never see that in the UK. And at its core, the National Health Service is a wonderful concept. And it was started after World War II, like a lot of the uh, healthcare systems in Europe were born out of the devastation of that war, and really the countries were starting from scratch, which never happened in the U.S. So it comes from a unique history, but it is very heavily centralized. The government controls everything. And I would say that a perfect system would be a hybrid of the two. We are too far the other way over here. We, we are too corporatized, and there's too much money and too much thought about profits involved. I did actually work in my final year of medical school in Australia for two months. And they, I would say, have as close to the perfect hybrid system that you you could design from scratch. Um, and actually, if you look at healthcare rankings, Australia is frequently near the top. And what they had was they had a full public healthcare system, which was basically going broke like a lot of systems are. And a few years ago, this may have been a few decades ago now, they decided to take as many people out of it as they could. So that what they did is they incentivized people and companies to buy their own health insurance. And if you did that, you would get a tax rebate. So a whole load of people went out and got their own insurance. They are in a parallel system of they're getting care privately, but they still have this backup as well for anyone who needs it. And it's a really good public health care system. I feel like a system like that would be really good, but we do need more uh, we do need more of a, a safety net. Yeah. so I wouldn't I wouldn't advise the US to go completely the way of the UK, and that's why Medicare for all may sound good, but I know what will come with that. and that would be basically doctors, nurses being paid mainly by the government and essentially becoming government workers, which is the situation in the the UK. I believe you need a, a dynamic between the two. You need to have the public backup, but you also need to encourage some private enterprise, and, and people who can afford it should just go and buy their own insurance.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for that insight. All right. There you have it. I hope that was helpful for you. You can go check out Dr. Dand at com. That's S U N E E L D H A N D. Dot com or just Google him and you can find that link. We'll have the link in our show notes as well. Again, that's sunildand.com. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode, got a little bit out of it. And if you're interested in preventive medicine or internal medicine or the differences between the UK and US, hopefully this was informative for you. I hope you stay safe. I hope we get through this pandemic as quickly as possible. And I hope uh, you are even better on your journey to medical school. And I hope that this episode will help clarify your journey to your specialty even more. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is Media.